Hello. Welcome back to Soul Gum. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you are well. I am. I am well. Today, we are going to be talking about the floating rock mentality that has been growing in popularity among Gen Z and millennials for the past several years. Or to translate for those of you whose screen time is less than like five hours a day, we're going to be talking about nihilism. This is going to be a very philosophy-heavy episode, and I'm really excited about that because I love philosophy. And we will also be talking about media, cosmology, religion, all as lenses to understand this floating rock mentality. Getting a little more granular, so you know where we're going, we are going to ask, what is the floating rock mentality? And why is it on the rise? Speaking cosmologically... Are we really nothing more than just insignificant creatures on an insignificant floating rock? Just how tiny of a dot is Earth in the context of the universe? Are we all that's out there when it comes to intelligent life? Are our lives meaningless? What are the pros of thinking life's meaningless? And what are the cons? If we accept that maybe our lives are meaningless, can we still live a joyful, fulfilling life? And in the context of a potentially meaningless universe, how do we develop a value system that will support us in crisis? How does belief in God, or whatever word you use for that concept, fit into all of this? Our spirituality and this floating rock mentality, this acceptance of a potentially purposeless universe, mutually exclusive, and if not, how? So that's where we're going. These are very ambitious questions, and I obviously do not endeavor to resolve them. Shockingly, I am not going to crack the case of the meaning of life and whether there are aliens and so on in today's episode. I do not know the answers to any of those questions, and I have very few answers as a general matter. My aim here is just to talk to you about these things from perspectives, both old and new, that might interest you and inform your thinking on them. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to unprovable things and unanswerable questions, we have to choose what we believe. So please take anything I say with a grain of salt to the extent it does not resonate with you. I am just a random girl sitting in my closet. I am an expert at truly nothing. Okay, three quick disclaimers before we get into it today. Number one, we are going to be talking existential dread. We are going to be talking briefly, but talking about intense mental health topics. We are fully going down the existential rabbit hole in this episode. And not everyone likes that, for good reason. So if you are someone who doesn't like to think about your mortality and the shortness of your life in the context of time as a whole and your smallness in the context of the universe and the potential purposelessness of it all, number one, that's an extremely valid way to feel. Number two, you are going to hate this episode. Okay? So I would not listen to it if that's you. I am releasing this episode and the death anxiety episode on the same day, and I know those are both very existential dready, but if that is not your thing, I promise I'm not turning this into the existential dread podcast, and there will be more happy episodes soon. Okay? That's number one. Number two, like I said in the last episode, if you've listened to it already, before I dive in, I want you to know, I need you to know, that regardless of where you are, on the atheist to spiritual to devoutly religious spectrum, that I respect your beliefs, and I think you know what's best for you spiritually. We are going to be analyzing questions that many people who are religious would fully turn to their religion to answer. What is the purpose of the universe, if any, etc.? We are going to be looking at those questions from more secular, spiritually uncontained perspectives. And I really make an effort to do that in a way that is not making religion the butt of the joke. I really respect religion. I think religious tolerance is extremely important. And I never want to evangelize my own sense of spirituality or villainize anyone else's way of connecting spiritually. That's very important to me. I am also going to be talking about why I think for some, atheism is really unfulfilling. But nothing I'm saying here is prescriptive. And I do not claim to have the answers. And if you are in a place of peace with the meaning of life or lack thereof or what we're doing here, how we make sense of it all, I am so happy for you. 
truly, regardless of whether what that looks like for you looks at all like what it looks like for me. My opinions being what they are does not mean I think other opinions are illogical or impossible or wrong or silly, okay? Do I think you're a silly girl or a silly person if you are devoutly religious? No. No, I do not. Do I think you're a silly person if you're an atheist? No. No. I respect your beliefs. I respect your opinions. These are just mine, okay? The last disclaimer, you may have already noticed my voice is very squeaky and cracky today, and I'm not going to take the time to try to repeat sentences when my voice cracks. My voice always cracks, and I've been repeating sentences to try to get the cracks out, and I don't have time to do it today because it's the day before the second Sunday of the month, which is when I told y'all I was going to put these episodes out, and it's nighttime, and I still got to edit this and upload it, and I know y'all don't care, but I care. I'm trying to honor my own commitments to myself and my creative endeavors, and I really want to put this up tomorrow so I can't be repeating sentences a million times. And I also just need to get a little more comfortable with myself and my voice. And it's not that I'm not comfortable with it. I am. But I also know that a lot of the experience of a podcast is about like the pleasing listeningness ASMR of it all. So I do try to speak in a pleasant way. And I know cracking isn't pleasant. Anyway, I'm not cutting out the cracks today. I'm sorry if that bothers you. I'm sorry. Maybe I will do it for future episodes. Maybe I will not. Okay? That was disclaimer number three. Let's get into it. So, the floating rock mentality. What is it? So this floating rock mentality has been on the rise for a few years now, and it basically pulls an Uno reverse card on nihilism, which is a belief that life is fundamentally meaningless. The floating rock mentality is a positive spin on that. It basically says, here's the thing. We are insignificant creatures on an insignificant floating rock in an infinite universe. So yes, our life is fundamentally meaningless. But you should be happy about that. Why? Well, you're stressed out about XYZ thing. You feel ugly today. You are deeply insignificant, cosmologically speaking. So really, there is nothing to worry about because absolutely nothing we're doing here matters. So this has been a growing sentiment among young people, and especially on the internet, for years now. And I could show you a million TikToks about it, but I think the post that actually encapsulates this mindset most completely that I've seen doesn't actually mention the word floating rock at all. So this was a song posted and written by Ian McConnell, Ian McConnell Music, on TikTok in January 2022. And the song is called Important. And he wrote it and posted it with the caption, existential crisis, but make it happy. I don't want to play it because I'm not sure if I can do that without offending the copyright gods. So I could just tell you the lyrics or I could sing it, which is less embarrassing. They're both embarrassing. I guess I'll just sing it. I'm just going to sing it. Okay. I can't sing. This is a song. I'm pretty sure that life doesn't have a meaning. And if there's a God, then he doesn't look like me. And I'm just a member of the current apex species. But there will be another when the humans go extinct. We've only been around 200,000 years of 13 and a half billion years. How can we think the pinnacle is here? Isn't that arrogant? There's a couple hundred trillion billion suns and we act like it all was made for us. There ain't no way that we're the only ones. This is a chorus. Here we go. I'm not important and neither are you. So let's do whatever we want to do. Bask in our cosmic insignificance. Soak up this blip we're living in. Because nothing matters anyway. Isn't that great? Okay? That was embarrassing. I'm as glad that is over as you were. But you get it, right? We're, we're on a floating rock. So nothing matters. And that's a good thing. That you should allow to soothe you about your worries. So that's what it is. Quote unquote optimistic nihilism. How did we get here? This brand of optimistic nihilism is quickly becoming the zeitgeist. I think I'm using this word right. Let me know. Trying it out. Trying it out. The zeitgeist of Gen Z and millennials who have unplugged from organized religion, which is 
a growing number. A survey done in 2021 by the American National Family Life found that in terms of identity, Gen Z Americans are the least religious generation yet. And generally speaking, the younger you are, the less likely you are to be religious. It also found that younger Americans are disaffiliating from religion at younger ages than older Americans, with 74% of the Gen Z respondents who had left their childhood religion reporting that they left before age 17. And it's pretty intuitive why, after turning away from organized religion, the floating rock mentality might sound good to someone. Coming from an institution that maybe told you that you had to believe this or you had to do that or you couldn't be this and your spiritual destiny depended on all that, the floating rock mentality seems refreshing. It says, there is truly nothing you could do to mess up that bad. Your spiritual destiny isn't hanging in the balance of anything. And I think and know from personal experience that spiritual deconstruction can feel really exposed. One way I heard it described that I really resonated with was... In talking about his deconstruction, Rhett McLaughlin from Rhett and Link described it as jumping out of a ship, but you're not jumping to another ship. You're jumping in the water. That's exactly what deconstruction felt like for me. There's this void where meaning used to be. And I think the floating rock mentality can be a way to cope with that void. And so I think we've gotten here because a lot of people are unplugging from organized religion and looking for a way to cope. We're going to be talking more about the floating rock mentality and optimistic nihilism, when I think it can be good, when I think it can be bad, but I want to dive into this literally for a moment, cosmologically. Are we really just insignificant creatures on an insignificant floating rock? We must be significant if we're the only intelligent life, so when it comes to intelligent life, are we all there is or are we a blip? So these are close to impossible questions that will probably never definitively be answered by anyone, and I, in particular, have no idea what I'm talking about ever with respect to anything, but especially this, so just keep that in mind as we tackle this. But let's see. Each of us is an individual human on an individual planet, Earth, and Earth is just one of eight planets in the solar system of our star, the Sun. There are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, alone, and potentially way more. And many, if not most, and some think all, of those stars have a planet or planets. So if we assume our sun's eight planets is a pretty average amount of planets, which who knows if it is, because our ability to meaningfully study space beyond our galactic backyard a few light years away in any direction is extremely limited. But if we assume that, then there are something like one to two trillion planets in our galaxy, the Milky Way, alone. And I've read some estimations as high as eight trillion planets in the Milky Way alone. Of those trillions of planets, estimations predict that 300 million of them could be habitable. What do I mean by habitable? So by that I mean a planet that is in the habitable zone of distance from its star. So this is the distance from its star where liquid water is possible. So in our solar system, it extends from around the orbit of Venus to around the orbit of Mars. So the location of the habitable zone depends on how big and bright any given star is. For example, the nearest star to our sun, Proxima Centauri, has at least one planet in its habitable zone, which is the planet Proxima b, but it is way closer to its star than we are to the sun because its star is a lot smaller and a lot dimmer. Now, there's obviously a lot more to habitability than the ability to have liquid water. You have to think about radiation, the size of the planet, has the star it orbits even been around long enough for life to develop, etc. But still, 300 million chances for those factors to coalesce is a lot of chances, and that's just in our galaxy. And even though we currently are only able to meaningfully study and identify a tiny, tiny fraction of those planets, something like 4,000 in the trillions of planets in our galaxy I think we're able to actually identify so far, scientists have already identified 24 planets that they think 
taking all those factors into consideration, radiation, size of the planet, age of the star, etc., may be super habitable, meaning even more conducive to the development of life than Earth is. So recapping this, you are one individual on one habitable floating rock of 300 million potentially habitable floating rocks in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And that's just the Milky Way, our one galaxy. There are at least hundreds of billions and potentially trillions of galaxies in the universe. And it's unclear whether the universe has any endpoint, but we do know that it's at least 92 billion light years big and that it's constantly expanding, constantly getting bigger. To give you a sense of just how big that is, before he died, Stephen Hawking was working on a project aimed at sending tiny microchips to Proxima Centauri, the star next door we just talked about, which has a planet Proxima b that some believe could be habitable. Proxima b is about four light years from Earth. Using the fastest technology, we could send a microchip. It would take the chip 12 to 20 years to reach Proxima b and 12 to 20 years to get back. If we were to try to send a person there, First of all, we couldn't, but if we sent a rocket there using the fastest rockets we have, it would take something like 100,000 years, and that is four light years. The universe extends for at least 92 billion light years. One light year is almost six trillion miles. The diameter of our Earth, for reference, is less than 8,000 miles. So in terms of physical matter alone, in terms of the size of the Earth versus the size of the universe, we are undoubtedly nothing more than a floating rock. We are not even a dot on the map. But wouldn't we be significant still if we are the only instance of intelligent life? The fact of intelligent life here on Earth, I think probably does not make us special. It feels very possible, and actually probable to me, that there are lots of other instances of intelligent life out there. I fully understand that even given a life-conducive environment, the development of intelligent life is very unlikely. But if you consider how many potentially habitable, life-conducive planets there likely are in our galaxy alone, and then consider that our galaxy is just one galaxy of possibly trillions of galaxies, you would think the development of intelligent life has happened more than once, right? Now, does that mean I think we're going to be like hanging out with aliens in the next few centuries or during the duration of human existence? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The likelihood of intelligent life existing anywhere close enough to us that we would be able to figure out how to communicate with it before we go extinct is obviously much, much, much lower than the likelihood of the existence of intelligent life in the universe. We currently can't even get to our next-door neighbor, Proxima Centauri, let alone the broader universe. I think we will be extinct long before we figure out how to, like, galaxy hop. But I will say, if we were ever able to communicate with intelligent life, I think we should not do that. Either we would destroy them or they would destroy us, right? Like, be for real. Let's be real with ourselves. What else could possibly happen in that situation? I read that the SETI Institute, which is, I think it stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Something, is an organization focused on the search for extraterrestrial life, sent a signal to Light and B which is another potentially habitable planet that's pretty close to us. It's 12 light years away. They sent the signal in 2017. So the signal will not reach light and B for 12 years. And if there was intelligent life there and it had the technology to respond and it did choose to respond, it would take another 12 years coming back to us, meaning it could get here by 2041. And in my personal opinion, light and B inhabitants, if you exist and are monitoring us and happen to be listening to this podcast, which is highly unlikely, my opinion is that you should not respond to the signal, okay? We don't want the smoke. That's not to imply you would necessarily destroy us. I bet you're very nice beings 
But you don't want the smoke either. We are not that nice of beings, honestly. This is the most high-risk blind date of all time. I don't know why we did that. We'll keep doing what we're doing. You keep doing what you're doing. We shouldn't have texted you. We were drunk. We apologize. All that to be said, in terms of our cosmological significance, Earth is very much an insignificant, tiny, floating rock when you're thinking about matter relative to the matter of the universe. And we humans have only been in existence for a tiny moment, 200,000 years, relative to the universe's 13.8 billion years. And in my opinion, we are probably not the only intelligent life in existence in the universe right now. And it really wouldn't even make us that much more significant if we were, right? When it comes to intelligent life, we're either A, the flavor of the year for a short, brief 200,000 years in a 13.8 billion year old universe and counting that will continue on after we're gone, or we're currently on the menu with other existing forms of intelligent life that exist now. And neither of those possibilities make us sound that significant. The universe is unfathomably big, and in the context of it, no matter how you slice it, we are unfathomably small. Okay, so far we've talked about what the floating rock mentality is, and we've established that cosmologically, literally speaking, I think it's true that we are insignificant creatures on an insignificant floating rock. Now, I have some bones to pick with the floating rock mentality. I think it has pros, which we'll talk about, but I also think it has big scary cons. So to lead us into the rabbit hole of cons, let's turn to Nietzsche. 18th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood and fascinating philosophers in history. Nietzsche is most known today for being the nihilism guy and also for his famous statement in his 1882 work, Gay Science, that God is dead. We're going to talk about that today. So you might be surprised that the nihilism guy who declared God was dead was a preacher's kid. Or you might not be, depending on your experience with the proclivities of preacher's kids. But he was. Nietzsche was born in 1844 in Prussia, in an area which is now part of eastern Germany. His father, Karl Ludwig Nietzsche, was the town pastor. When Nietzsche was a little boy, his dad got a terminal brain disease and died when Nietzsche was only five. And then the next year, his two-year-old brother Ludwig also died. So you can imagine that this horrible thing or things happening to Nietzsche's family and his father, who was a devoted man of God, could have planted some early seeds of doubt in Nietzsche's head about the omnipotence of God. Nietzsche went on to college at the University of Bonn in Germany. Karl Marx also went there, fun fact. And he studied theology and philology, the study of the history of language. Nietzsche excelled at theology, but he really quickly became disillusioned with Christianity and switched to studying philology exclusively. He then went on to the University of Leipzig. He excelled so much there that he was offered a classical philology professor position in his mid-20s. He was the youngest professor ever hired at that university and still is to this day. So he took that job and did that for a few years, but he eventually left, partially because he was starting to feel really constrained by academia, but also partially because he had syphilis and was in really poor health. Nietzsche's life went downhill from here. He continued to be in really poor physical health. He fell in love with this woman, Lou Salome, and proposed to her multiple times and was rejected by her every time. This woman, by the way, was fascinating. I don't know why she's not more talked about. Everyone in Western Europe, like all these prominent thinkers that you definitely know of, were in love with her. She's super interesting. I had a bunch of notes written about her, but it like truly has nothing to do with this, so I will spare y'all this time. But yeah, he fell in love with her, was rejected by her. He was kind of living this nomadic life where he was moving around a lot, but not like in a cute, fun van life type way, in a more aimless, negative type way. 
He did write his most prominent works during this time, during the 1870s and 1880s. Human All to Human, Gay, Science, On the Genealogy of Morals were all written and published during this time, but they were not acclaimed during his lifetime. And I think what we need to know here for purposes of analyzing the dark side of the floating rock mentality is that Nietzsche's philosophy is not just an unraveling of the stronghold of the church, it's not just a statement about the lack of meaning and purpose of the universe from a thousand feet up. It is an unraveling of the concept of objectivity as a whole. It erodes the notion of objective truth. Objective truth of anything. Or objective rightness, goodness, wrongness. Those concepts lose meaning in Nietzsche's world and work. Let's come back to his proclamation that God is dead. So he said this in Gay Science in 1882. It's his most famous quote. You've probably heard it, but you may not have heard what he said next. God is dead, he said. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Is not the greatness of this too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So Nietzsche was living during the Enlightenment, which was this shift towards intellect, this age of reason that happened in Europe in the 1800s. And during this time, there was a lot of philosophical conversation around the existence of God and criticism of the church. This was the time of Rousseau, Diderot, Voltaire, Kant, and it's also a time of a lot of scientific and technical advancement. This is coming off the back of the scientific revolution. So Nietzsche believed that humans were on their way to disproving the existence of God. So when he says, God is dead, that is my understanding of what he means. And when you hear this quote in context, it's obvious it's not a celebratory statement, right? It's a mourning. When he says, we have killed God, my understanding of what he means there is that through our insatiable drive for knowledge and truth and objective anything, we have bitten right down into a big nothing burger. Albert Camus, who we'll talk about later in this episode, says, man is always prey to his truths. Once he has admitted them, he cannot free himself from them. That's my understanding of what Nietzsche's saying here. We opened a box and saw horrifying things inside it that we'll never be able to unsee. Now, I don't say any of this to suggest that Nietzsche was pro-religion. He was not. He was extremely critical of the church, but he did recognize that human beings struggle to cope with suffering without belief in a higher power or a deeper meaning to life. Nietzsche talks about this concept of an ubermensch, a wonder man, a superman, which he uses to refer to someone who, in the absence of organized religion or spirituality, in the absence of belief in anything higher, a soul, a purpose-driven universe, etc., is able to develop a fulfilling, intrinsically sourced value system that they can use to navigate the world and cope with suffering. But he thought this was a rare outcome and that most people wouldn't really be able to cope with this idea of a purposeless universe. For most people, he thought this would lead them into a spiral. It would lead to a devaluation of their life and time, and it would lead them to spend their lives filling their time with meaningless entertainment. And I think that's a pretty chilling prediction in the age of the infinite social media scroll. So we've been in Nietzsche land a long time. Let's cut back to now. It's you and me. We're in that infinite scroll. We're scrolling our phones. We're coming across this floating rock mentality in our for you pages. Let's talk about the good and bad of it. 
So, so far in this episode, we've talked about what the floating rock mentality is. We've talked about whether it's true cosmologically speaking and said, yeah, probably. We've put this mentality into philosophical context that shows the darker side of it. So let's dive into talking about the pros and cons of this way of thinking in the 21st century. Now, let's start with the good. Most obviously, the floating rock mentality encourages us not to sweat the small stuff, right? This is how we see it used on TikTok a lot. You got a pimple, you are a random creature on a random rock. Your pimple does not matter at all, actually. You said something awkward. Well, nothing you say will ever really matter in the scheme of things, so it's okay. In a time where hustling is glorified, it gives us an important reminder that we really can't accomplish anything meaningful here in terms of like, being remembered or accruing power. Anything we can do here is all very impermanent, all very ephemeral. And in this way, the floating rock mentality can encourage us to use our short time here on earth, prioritizing maximizing joy and love and laughter and experiences, rather than trying to build a castle of money and achievement that is ultimately, no matter what, made out of sand. So that's pro number one. It encourages us to not sweat the small stuff. Similarly, reminding ourselves that maybe there is no greater purpose or plan or next move after this life can help us not treat our lives like an application for afterlife. When we do not appreciate the possibility of purposelessness, and the extent to which maybe what we get out of all this is just this very brief cosmological blip of consciousness and experience. One might choose to spend their life attempting to position themselves well for what they believe comes next, rather than living out their current human life to the fullest. So you think of someone who follows rules for their entire life that insult their own soul or do not live into who they are because they believe that to be necessary to please the universe, please God, have a positive afterlife experience, etc. I think appreciating the possibility of purposelessness can help you not police yourself in those ways. So number one, it helps you not sweat the small stuff. And number two, it helps you not treat your life like an application for afterlife. Last good thing about the floating rock mentality I want to talk about. I think this idea that nothing matters in the grander scheme can be a helpful landing place after organized religion to the extent you are someone who grew up in organized religion and it didn't give you what you needed spiritually. Something I have learned about myself is that I usually need to bounce from one polarity to the other before I can land at the point on the spectrum where I actually am intrinsically in my soul. So in the case here, I think it can feel really straightforward, and that doesn't mean easy, but clear to say if you're in a belief system that includes a purpose-driven universe and a very anthropomorphized god with a lot of rules for you and a very specific task for you to do here on earth with a death-defying outcome and a model of the universe that is deeply human-centric, right? And you know that's not working for you. You know it's not exactly what you believe. If you're there, I think it can feel easier to say, you know what? I think I was wrong about all of that. Throw away the whole lunch versus individually assessing all the different facets of what you're walking away from and considering whether any of them actually do sit right with your soul. Thinking back to Rhett McLaughlin's description of spiritual deconstruction as being hard because you are not jumping from one ship to another ship, but rather you are jumping into the water, I think Pivoting immediately from organized belief to complete anti-belief for some can feel marginally more comfortable, more like jumping from one ship to another ship. Because anti-belief, like belief, is clear-cut. It gives you an answer. 
the ship is there for you to board. And the alternative is building your own ship, right? And when you're first walking away from organized religion, especially if you're struggling, you might not want to or be equipped to build your own ship, explore your mind. You might be in a place where that's not a healthy and productive exercise at first. So in that way, I think the floating rock mentality can give you somewhere to land that isn't utter true negative nihilism. If you find yourself in this place of complete anti-belief, it can give you a positive spin on that. It can give you some rose-colored glasses to wear as you sit in what I think for many is ultimately a really scary and spiritually unfulfilling place to sit. Okay, so we just talked about what I think are the pros of the floating rock mentality. It can help you not sweat the small stuff. It implores you to not treat your life like an application for a positive afterlife experience. And it can soften the blow of complete anti-belief if you find yourself there after walking away from organized belief. Now let's talk about the cons. So I'm going to talk about personal experience here. So I personally have never experienced a state of complete lack of belief, but when I first deconstructed my religion, and now, still, to an extent, I thought nothingness after death and purposelessness of the universe were very possible, if not probable. And for the first time, I forced myself to sit with that possibility rather than deny it. And when you have never allowed yourself to meaningfully consider purposelessness, nothingness, that is a terrifying place to be. And the floating rock mentality This positive spin on the possibility of purposelessness really did help me cope. It helped me get through my days during that time. And I personally wasn't troubled by the classical criticisms and risk assessments of nihilist tangential thinking. With respect to me personally, people hear this type of thinking and fear that you will develop an appetite to watch the world burn, basically, because of a belief that it doesn't matter if it does, right? We've seen that villain origin story a million times. Think Brad Pitt's character in Fight Club, where at the beginning, he seems like a pretty cool guy, and then you see him going down this nihilist path, and then by the end, he's blowing up buildings. Or a more recent example is Jobu Topaki in Everything Everywhere All at Once. She puts the entire universe, the entire multiverse, in an everything bagel and is considering destroying it, And this is what she says about it. She says, I got bored one day and I put everything in a bagel. Everything. All my hopes and dreams, my old report cards, every breed of dog, every personal ad on Craigslist, sesame, poppy seeds, salt, and it collapsed in on itself. Because you see, when you really put everything on a bagel, it becomes this. The truth. And her mom, Evelyn, says, what is the truth? And Jobu says, nothing matters. I think for most of us, This is a very unlikely negative outcome of this way of thinking. I'd like to believe, and I do believe, that most of us have no appetite to watch the world burn, regardless of whether we think life has a meaning. And even less fantastical potential outcomes related to mistreating others due to unsubscription from belief in purpose. You know, things like, oh, if you think the world is purposeless and nothing matters, are you just going to wreck the environment? use up as many resources as we want because who cares how many more generations of people get to live on earth who cares about all the animals that will go extinct none of this matters anyway right according to you for most of us i don't think our care for others hinges on divine commands to care for others or belief in deep purpose of the lives of others or ourselves for me personally I think appreciating the possibility of purposelessness actually increases my desire to love others well and to be a good steward of our world. Because if it's possible that all we have is this short experience on this earth, then 
It's extremely important to maximize love in the world and be a joyful moment for every being that you can be because all we have are joyful moments and do your best to minimize the harm you cause to any other living thing because there's nothing you could possibly be building in a world made of sand that is worth harming others over. I actually think appreciating the possibility of purposelessness really drives home the senselessness of the harm we inflict in the name of progress. Because in a purposeless universe, there's really no such thing as progress. You can't build anything here. So I say all that to say, this risk you hear about of wanting to set the world on fire because you don't believe in anything, in my opinion, is not a likely outcome for most of us. Most of us, I believe, are not going to want to stuff the universe in an everything bagel like Joe Utabaki. We're not going to turn into Tyler Durden and blow up buildings or treat our earth recklessly even. Or if you do have a desire to do those things, I don't think that's because of your belief in God or purpose or lack thereof. Regardless of whether we believe there's purpose to be found here, I think most of us are inherently more good, inherently more loving than that type of treatment when it comes to others. Which brings me to the major scary downside I do see with the floating rock mentality, with belief in purposelessness. What I do think is a risk of this type of thinking is the extent to which it makes your assessment of the value of your own life unstable. I found this mindset so freeing, so inspiring, until the first big bad thing happened in my life. And suddenly, I became aware of just how much this mindset does not support you when you're in crisis. When you believe there's joy to be experienced here and that you have the capacity to provide joy and value to others, the floating rock mentality feels great. It feels freeing and inspiring and it compels you to go out and get that joy, go out and give that joy. It's all we have. We're on a floating rock. There's nothing to build here. So go out and love and be loved. But what about when you don't believe there's love and joy to give and get? What happens when it's we're on a floating rock and I'm having a terrible time on the rock, and I feel I have nothing to offer to others on the rock. What happens then? And this is what Nietzsche was talking about when he said that most people would spiral without belief in a deeper meaning to life. And Camus, who we'll talk about later, thought the same, thought that many people would lose the will to live. This mindset has no tether, no anchor, nothing is holy. Nothing is untouchable, not even your own life. And I think it's hard to appreciate that until the first time you land at bottom with only this floating rock mentality in your toolbox to try to crawl out. Okay, so... In telling you about the pros and cons that I see in the floating rock mentality, I have also explained how I backed myself into a corner a little bit. I deconstructed my religion, allowed myself to meaningfully consider purposelessness, stumbled into a floating rock optimistic nihilist mentality, which felt really freeing and inspiring and straightforward until I found myself in crisis. And in crisis, I saw the scary downside of this way of thinking up close. And I realized I do not want to live with an untethered value system that does not root me in a greater purpose and a greater love when I individually feel lacking in purpose and love. So next, I want to talk about how I got out of that and how I found a value system that works for me. We will take a route that cuts through some mythology and philosophy to get there. So let's start by talking about Sisyphus. You've probably heard of Sisyphus. 
He is the mythological ancient Greek guy who repeatedly tried to defy death and made Hades really mad by doing that and got himself sentenced to an eternal life of rolling a boulder up a hill. So he was condemned to spend an eternity pushing this boulder up a hill and every time it got near the top, it would roll back down forever. In his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, French-Algerian 20th century philosopher Albert Camus argues that we aren't so different from Sisyphus. We spend our lives trying to build things in a world made of sand, right? We want so badly to be remembered and we try so hard to leave our mark on this place. We paint cave walls, we reproduce, we write things, we post on the internet. We all want to have a great lasting idea and impact, but ultimately we will all be forgotten. We live our lives in cycles that will never be complete. We wash the same body 29,000 times. If you take a bath every day and you live to your 79, we brush the same 32 teeth for our whole life again and again because we wake up the next morning after cleaning them the night before and they're dirty again. We desperately want to survive and yet we will all die. Every boulder rolls back down the hill. Camus thought there were three ways people digested this information. Number one was losing the will to live altogether, which is what we were just talking about and what Nietzsche thought would happen to most people. Number two, Camus thought you could take a leap of faith, choose to believe there's a purpose, choose to believe that we have some divinely assigned task to do here, and if we do it right, there's life after this life. The last option, the third option, is where we'll linger. In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus says this, Man stands face to face with the irrational. He feels within him his longing for happiness and for reason. The absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. So this is actually quite similar to the work of Ernest Becker that we talked about last episode, the paradox of being human, the juxtaposition of our insatiable driving desire for survival and our awareness that we will not survive. So absurdism, says Camus, is learning to dance in that storm, learning to find beauty and acceptance in the tension between our drives for meaning and survival and purpose and our awareness that we will never get those things, at least not definitively. Absurdism is learning to find beauty in these futile, pointless cycles, learning to cherish and savor pushing our rocks up our hills, knowing full well they will tumble back down. Camus ends the myth of Sisyphus by saying, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. So this is not lingering in this nihilistic space of nothing matters. It's transcending that and realizing that everything matters. In a world where you can accomplish nothing, in a potentially purposeless universe, every moment, every tiny impact you have on others, every tiny joy you yourself experience, a nice moment with a friend, a kiss from your dog, a really good, crispy Diet Coke from McDonald's, that all matters so much. Now, you might be wondering, Victoria, how is that really any different from optimistic nihilism, though, from the floating rock mentality we've been talking about this whole time? Is we're on a floating rock so nothing matters, really meaningfully different from we're on a floating rock so nothing matters so everything matters? Isn't this just a deeper expression of the same rosiness of the floating rock mentality without getting us out of the woods of the scary cons? How would absurdism support you in crisis? And it's a great question. I'm glad you asked. From what we've said so far, I don't think it's meaningfully different, right? Here's where, in my opinion, it does get different. And reasonable minds disagree on whether this takeaway I'm about to say is actually what Camus is saying, but it is what I believe. 
In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus says, the absurd is lucid reason noting its limits. The hurt within me I can feel, and I judge that it exists. This world I can touch, and I likewise judge that it exists. There ends all my knowledge, and the rest is construction. So, unlike Nietzsche's philosophy, I do not understand Camus' work to be staunchly anti-belief, to be a proclamation of purposelessness. Rather, I see this as an invitation to acknowledge the possibility of purposelessness and to learn to dance in that possibility, to make peace with that possibility. Learn to use that paradox of a drive for meaning, a deep desire to know what we're doing here and an awareness that we'll never get it, as a mechanism to help us appreciate every moment we do have more. But I think this philosophy leaves room for spirituality, where Nietzsche's explicitly does not, in my opinion. And in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion. And if you are staunchly atheist and have peace in your heart about that, I am genuinely so happy for you. I'm glad it's working for you. I'm not trying to change your mind. But in my opinion, I agree with Nietzsche that a lack of belief in any deeper connectedness for many of us is going to bottom in deep depression. And finding a tether, finding something that is holy, something that is unshakable to you, can really support you when you find yourself in crisis. And I think that's true regardless of whether what you choose to believe is true. This brings me to Pascal's wager, which you've probably heard of. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and theologian. Theologian? How do we say that word? Theologian. She's a theologian. I'm suspicious of that, but okay. Theologian and philosopher who offered a pragmatic, results-based answer to the question of whether we should choose to believe in God. So, Pascal, rather than joining in with all the other philosophers and theologians at that time who were endeavoring to prove that God was real, he said, what you guys are arguing about, it's really moot. And let me tell you why. This is where I really wish I had a visual element to this podcast because this is something where a visual reference would really help. But Pascal thought there were two possibilities. Either God exists or God does not exist. And this is an inherently flawed premise, right? Because he's envisioning a world where only Judeo-Christian God exists, if any God exists. Only one religion exists, which you can either subscribe to or not. And there are no other religions in this equation. But let's just set that aside for a second. Unlike Nietzsche... Pascal believed we would never be able to prove that God exists, nor that God doesn't exist. So where Nietzsche thought disproving the existence of God was possible, Pascal did not. He thought we would never know for sure if God exists or not. And I agree with Pascal about that. I think unless you believe that humans can perceive everything in existence, then it's not really possible to disprove the existence of anything. So Because he thought it was not possible to know for sure, Pascal thought you must choose to believe in God or to not believe in God. Now, there are four universes of possibility in this setup. Number one, you choose to believe God exists and congratulations, you were right. God does exist. In this case, Pascal says, you go to heaven. So that's the best outcome. In universe two, you choose to believe God exists and God does not exist. In that case, Pascal thought there was no harm there, even though you were wrong. No harm, no foul. You miss 100% of the afterlife shots you don't take, right? So that's a pretty neutral outcome. Universe number three, you choose not to believe in God And you were right. 
God does not exist. And Pascal said, like universe two, that's a neutral outcome. You don't really get anything for being right about God not existing. Universe number four, you chose not to believe in God and you were wrong and God is real and God is angry with you. So in this classical Judeo-Christian setting, you have a very bad outcome in that universe, says Pascal. So Pascal's point here is that speaking in terms of the logical choice, the pragmatic choice based on the possible afterlife outcomes, it is more logical and more pragmatic to choose to believe in God. Because if you believe in God in this setup, you are either going to have a neutral or good afterlife outcome. And if you choose not to believe, you are either going to have a neutral or bad afterlife outcome. Now, obviously, there are a lot of issues here, even beyond this false binary one religion setup that this entire equation exists in. Number one, I disagree with the premise that believing or not believing is a neutral choice with respect to what's happening in this life, with respect to how it affects us before or after life outcomes, which seems to be an assumption that this wager makes. I do think there are costs to believing in God, or at least I do not think it's the case for everyone that there are no costs. And that's not to say there aren't benefits to believing in God in this life. And likewise, there are costs and benefits of not believing in God in this life. And to be clear, I'm not talking about afterlife possibilities. I'm talking about how the choice of believing or not believing affects how you move through your life. And I think in each case, the calculus of whether the costs and benefits of believing or not believing net out to something positive in this life is an individual question. Only you know the answer of which one will impact you more positively in this life. But Pascal's wager paints this as a neutral question that becomes very not neutral when you die and you get the outcome of what you wagered on. And I don't agree with that. I'll also say I personally do not believe in the afterlife outcomes as they're set up in this problem. I do not believe there's a reward for some who believe in God or the right God and a punishment for others who don't. That's just not something I personally believe. But I really like this pragmatic thinking around the question of whether to believe. I learned about Pascal and this wager in college and it has always stuck with me. It has always stayed in my mind since then that when it comes to the question of whether to believe in something higher, maybe what's more important than whether it's true is whether it will bring you peace. What will help you live a life you're proud of? What will inspire you to love yourself and others well? What will motivate you to seek out all the joy you can in this life? Because I do think Pascal is right that if you choose to believe in God and you are ultimately wrong and God does not exist, you haven't really lost anything in that universe. As long as your belief in God was something during your life that brought you peace, made you a better person, added to your life rather than constrained your life. And for me, when it comes to the question of what belief will bring me peace and make me better, here on earth now, I know that it's not a belief in purposelessness. I do not want to believe nothing matters. I want to make peace with the possibility that nothing matters. I don't want to be in denial. And I think that's how absurdism helps. That's how the floating rock mentality can help. But I want to believe in a deeper connectedness. If not something higher, something that connects us all with each other. And I do believe in that. And that has brought me so much peace. And that feels very holy and unshakable to me. Because even when my individual value feels depleted to me, I am priceless. Because I am connected to the aliveness of every living thing in existence. I am a part of that. So to me, that's God. God is the essence of what we all are. God is the tiny, 
unchanging spark of consciousness that is all any of us really are behind our thoughts and our ego and our human identities. And I believe in that God intrinsically because I feel a deep knowing of it, but also because I want to believe in it because I know it is my tether and I know I need a tether. So I lead myself to believe in it. When I have experiences that reinforce that belief, I cling to them. I remind myself of them. I look for God in this world. And when you look for something, anything, I think you will find it. If you're looking for evidence of holiness in this world, you will find it. And if you are looking for evidence of a lack of holiness or utter meaninglessness, you will also find that. Now, we're wrapping up here, but you might be thinking, Victoria, I'm looking. Trust me, I do not want to be Jobu Tupaki. I do not want to be Nietzsche, but I'm not finding it. And I want to be clear here, I don't think that having a value system that works has to be a value system that's spiritually connected. But if you think it would feel good to be spiritually connected, and you don't feel fulfilled without belief in something deeper, but you don't believe in God, you might be wondering, how do I make myself believe if I want to believe, but I don't? And you know, I think you can't. You can't make yourself believe anything, but you can widen the lens of what that thing could be, what it could look like. So I think many people, and again, no shade if you're staunchly atheist and not spiritual and that's working for you, but Many people, when they say they're not spiritual, really, their idea of spirituality is still very linked to one specific model of belief. And they may think that to believe in God means to believe in this very anthropomorphized, static, human-like being in the sky who has a plan for you and loves you and afterlife has to mean a paradise where you, your human identity, is enjoying themselves forever after death. And that's one thing to believe in. I'm not saying that's wrong or making fun of that at all. But I am saying that's not the only way spirituality can look. And if that's not a spiritual model that sits honestly on your soul, if you're not able to buy into that genuinely, rather than throwing away the whole lunch... I don't know why I keep saying the whole lunch. Like, that's a phrase. That's not a phrase. Maybe you explore other ways spirituality could look. Maybe your God, that which is holy and unshakable to you, is nothing more than unadulterated presence and aliveness. So, Alan Watts, who was a prominent Western Buddhist, said, Zen does not confuse spirituality with thinking about God while one is peeling potatoes. Zen spirituality is just to peel the potatoes. So maybe holiness is just deep presence in this exact moment. Maybe heaven or afterlife is not this paradise where we move to when we die in our human identities and live on the way we're alive currently. But maybe it's just the idea that you are but one tiny fragment of a collective aliveness that will carry on long after your individual identity is gone. And that the aliveness of what you ultimately are, that tiny piece of consciousness, rather than your body or your brain or your thoughts or your ego, is not impacted by the death of those other things. So maybe it's not a question of trying to make yourself believe, but reframing what belief looks like. It's asking, am I really not spiritual or have I just constrained what my spirituality is allowed to look like? Have I limited what is allowed to be holy to me? Okay, I think that's all I got. So today we talked about the floating rock mentality, what it is, whether it's true cosmologically, whether we should be texting the aliens, no. We talked Nietzsche his sad childhood life, his sad love life, his philosophical legacy, and how that colors the floating rock mentality. What it can tell us about how believing in purposelessness can be good and how it can be bad. We talked about Sisyphus and 
Camus and absurdism and this idea that we must imagine Sisyphus happy. We must learn to dance in the paradox of the desire for meaning and an inability to ever definitively get it. We talked about God, whether there's room to believe in God in this absurdist mentality, whether it's rational to believe in God, a la Blaise Pascal, and what believing in God can look like to the extent it's something you would like to do. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had so much fun recording this one. This is some of my favorite stuff to talk about. I am trying to settle into a posting schedule of two episodes every second Sunday of the month, and if I'm able to follow through on that, the next episodes will be coming out March 11th, 2023. I would love to hear your thoughts about this one. It would make me so happy. Okay, that's all. It is two o'clock in the morning and I need to go to bed. If you listen to this whole thing, thank you so much. Have an amazing day and I'll see you next time.